2: Beware the living wage, a dead, useless £7.20 per hour. It will not prey on your young if they're under 25. Woo! Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast. I'm and Duyeb, GLC balloon race winner 1983, and very, very proud of that fact. And this week, we're back to a normal length show with interviews and everything. Parliament is still in recess, despite Jeremy Corbyn asking the Prime Minister to recall it. I'm not surprised he refused, to be honest. You would need quite the memory to recall all the names of 650 MPs. That's a proper Derren Brown trick. But even though, and yes, that is a really, really rubbish joke, deal with me, I've had a week off... Even though they are still in recess, this show is not in recess, we are fully back. And in fact, at Partly Political HQ, I've got so much work to do, I'm more tied up than John Whittingdale on a weekend. Uh, That was my favourite story of the past few days, by the way, that the Culture Secretary has had a relationship with a dominatrix. And not because that's scandalous or anything. Look, Let's be fair, stories of people's sex lives are hugely dull, and regardless of how much I hate Droopy the Dog tribute act Whittingdale, it is none of our business. Why I think it is an interesting story is it means that if John Whittingdale is into SM, then maybe there are some ways to save the BBC properly. You know, for a start, they could try just telling him that with all his policies, he's been very, very naughty and must be punished, before demanding that he say that they are in charge and they're the real boss instead of him. If that doesn't work, then maybe there's just a safe word that they can use, uh, and if they say it enough, then he'll stop trying to dismantle them altogether. Or, as a very last resort, they could just constantly report the story of his relationship with the escort, again and again and again, and if he tried to gag them, it would just provide more evidence. Go for it, BBC! Otherwise, uh, I won't be focusing on that story this week, or the news about all the leaked papers from the Panama law firm revealing 72 current or former heads of state are involved in money laundering or tax evasion. I mean, let's be honest, the main shock of that story so far is that it's only 72 of them. I thought it would be hundreds and hundreds more. And the law firm is called Mossack Fonseca, which is exactly the sort of name Dan Brown would give a villain. So we should have seen it coming. Uh, check back to episode eight with our chat with Joe Morn about tax havens, uh, where we talked about some of that already. And I will focus more on Panama Papers next week. So this week, there is a lot to get through on this show. And I would just like to say thanks again for subscribing and listening. And as always, if you do enjoy it, please spread the word and tell others too as well and reviewers on iTunes. Also, if anyone out there would be at all keen to help with any of this show uh, in terms of admin tasks, you know, like uh, helping to find guests or helping to source some of the partly big society stories, any of that please, please let me know. It would be very useful. Um, you could become a sort of Partly Political Broadcast special advisor or some other completely meaningless title that simply means if I ever do anything wrong, I can blame it on you and fire you and then we can carry on doing awful things regardless. Um, seriously, though, uh, if you drop me a line at broadcast at gmail.com if you fancy doing free work for absolutely nothing but sheer tin and love. Uh, wow, that sounds... Really, really wrong. Sorry. Uh, Anyway, we're skipping all the headlines this week, and we are getting straight into... Is there a more prophetically named business than Tartar Steel? I mean, it may as well have been called Bye Bye Metal, or So Long and Thanks for the Iron Carbon Alloy. The British steel industry is in severe decline and in the past week, Indian company Tata Steel announced that they are planning to sell their UK business, which could cause up to 40,000 job losses and kickstart the death of yet another UK industry. And this isn't because people in the UK have suddenly stopped needing steel. No, quite the opposite. Steel is still used in buildings and submarines and cutlery and food packaging and cars and this massive big sword that I'm dangerously waving around as I record this. Sorry. So yeah, uh, we still need steel, sorry again, but the UK industry is flagging due to being hit by high UK energy prices thanks to the ever rising costs of privatised energy companies and they really need that energy in order to use the furnaces that they make the steel with. And then of course there's all the extra cost of climate change policies which hasn't been helped by the government's lack of incentives to help companies afford to become more green. And then there's all the cheap steel from China that's being sold in the UK for stupidly, stupidly low prices. This is due to the Chinese stock market crash. Uh, You now have producers in China who are steel dumping on other countries. Yeah, that does sound like they've got a little bit too much iron in their diet and they should probably see a doctor quite urgently. But what steel dumping actually means is that they're all selling steel at a loss. And here in the UK, our government loved nothing more than taking advantage of a situation where it can help all sides lose money at once. I'm joking. The UK government, of course, has been hugely helpful in all of this. Uh, And the Secretary of State for Business, Innovation and Skills, and the only giant shaved hamster in the whole cabinet, Sajid Javid, proved this by being in Australia on the day Tata Steel made their announcement. Javid couldn't have been physically further away from the steel crisis unless he'd managed to travel to Uranus, which would have made a nice difference for being stuck up his own. When questioned about this on The Mar Show, Sajid Javid said he was in Australia because he knew Tata Steel were in trouble, but he didn't realise to quite what extent. You're the business secretary. You have one job, and that is to be aware of issues like the collapsing steel industry. It'd be like a lighthouse keeper being inland when a ship hit some rocks and stating, well, I didn't know they'd be needing a light right that minute. I mean, no wonder he was in Australia, though, because he would have known exactly when the ship was going to hit the fan and preferred to be overly warm rather than cool but absolutely covered in it. The EU imposed anti-dumping duties on China in 2015, but the UK lobbied against them. Dump Chinese still currently has an effective UK state subsidy of up to 72%, And only two months ago Sajid Javid told MPs himself that he wouldn't fight for higher tariffs on dumped steel because there are lots of British businesses that consume steel so dumping is helpful for them. So a British business needs to suffer so British businesses can do well. Yeah, nice one Sajid. He seems like the sort of man who'd cut off his nose in order to spite his face and then rebuild a new better face for the nose while the the original face collapsed from severe blood loss. In fact, I might recommend that idea to him ASAP. Then there's the EU state aid suspension, which David Cameron didn't even begin to address in his EU reform plan. A decent state aid plan by the European Commission could create a rescue fund for the entire European steel industry. Though, let's be fair, all of David Cameron's EU reform negotiations were a political chocolate teapot if the chocolate was inedible and he accidentally left it in the hotel on his way home anyway. So, the government knew that this was going to happen. And now the problem is, how on earth can Tata Steel be saved? Well, the two more favourable options seem to be nationalisation of the industry or the sale of the business to a private buyer. And by favourable, I mean that no one that has any say in it really seems that enthusiastic about either. Uh, Saji Javid was very defensive about it on his show appearance and said that nationalisation wasn't the way, which I guess is because it would just ruin the government's current record of selling off all nationalised services if they top up the list with yet another one. So the likelihood is, if it is to be saved, it'll be by private buyer. Uh, probably Indian businessman Sajiv Gupta, who's already expressed an interest in Tatar Steel, but said it's all down to how much the government want to back the steel industry. So the question is, do the government care enough? Well, the Scottish Parliament managed to facilitate Gupta with two of Scottish Tartar steel plants, and they briefly nationalised them before Gupta could take them over, which really helped. And probably had something to do with the fact that the Scottish public found out that the new fourth bridge is being made almost entirely with Chinese steel even though there's a Scottish steel plant just 40 miles away from the bridge. And you sort of think, when steel is travelling 12,000 miles to a bridge, even the proclaimers would probably think, that is not worth it, and we'll go for 40 miles down the road instead, no matter how iffy it would make their lyrics. So how do we make the government care about English and Welsh steel production? Well, my idea would be that everyone that's got a knighthood from now on has to wear a full suit of armour. That way steel production would go up again and several really awful people would hate the summertime and it would possibly push the lords to back the steel industry again. Or we could rebuild the entire House of Commons with steel. Uh, I mean, we're constantly told that it needs a refurb and again it would be great watching MPs really hate summer and then have to wear their coats in the winter. But sadly, neither of those ideas would really help at all with the situation in Port Talbot, and none of this will make a difference unless Chinese dumping is properly dealt with. And that won't be dealt with until the government decide that UK workers are far more important than propping up Chinese markets. Sajid Javid has said that he doesn't want to live in a country that doesn't manufacture its own steel, so that could be a good sign, though I'm worried that's just his way of saying that he'll be moving to Beijing any day now. Sometimes I wonder if the Conservative Party just forgot to check the spelling of steel industry. Did you have a favourite April Fool's gag? Uh, Mine was waking up on Friday morning to see the UK government had launched a living wage that no one can actually live on. Classic! Uh, And then sadly it was still there after midday which sort of ruined the entire April Fool's feel. The Living Wage, while sounding like a terrible hammer horror movie, is actually one of George Osborne's big ideas, uh, which also sounds like a terrible hammer horror movie. And it was actually one of George Osborne's big ideas that lots of people had as a big idea before he did, where rather than businesses just providing a minimum wage, they actually ensure workers get a fee that's in line with inflation and living costs so they can, well, as it says on the tin, live off it. The National Living Wage came into force on Friday, April the 1st, and already some have hailed it. Many haven't hailed it, claiming that it's not actually a living wage, or that it'll completely ruin businesses. And ultimately, it does seem like, once again, it's a policy that sounds a lot nicer in the headlines than when it plunks into your bank, with a rather disappointing tinkle. So, this week, I spoke to Emily Kenway from the Living Wage Foundation to explain whether it's a good thing or not, and why it only applies to over 25-year-olds, and also if this now means we can refer to anything below the official living wage as a death fee. Over to Emily. So the mandatory national living wage came into force on Friday, uh, and it's £7.20 an hour. Um, But is that actually a living wage?
1: Uh, It's not actually a living wage. It is a pay rise for about 1.8 million people, which is a good thing, but um, the name is incorrect. So a living wage would be, funnily enough, calculated according to the cost of living, which is where the name comes from. And what that means is, Um, taking a basket of goods and services that you need to live what's called a low but acceptable standard of life. And that's things like food, rent, childcare, fuel, all those kind of basics. And um, calculating the rate you need to cover those things. Now, this uh, £7.20 is not that, um, and very explicitly is not that. Instead, what they've done is say that they want it to become 60% of median income by 2020, so of a type of average of income. That's all right. 60% of median income is quite a well-respected like poverty threshold. Um, however, if it will get there in 2020 remains to be seen, because so it's going to be very steep for lots of employers to do that. And I think it is very unlikely it would be that in London. Um, but it also, you know, it's a misnomer. It's simply not a living wage. And it was a very clever PR moment for Osborne to call it that. Um, yeah, it, it was a win for him, but not necessarily for the workers of Britain.
2: Yeah, because the amount that they say will be national living wage in 2020 is going to be quite far below the actual living wage that it should be and the rate of inflation and costs of living and things like that. Is is that correct?
1: Well, so they're saying, I mean, to be honest with you, it's um, that there's all sorts of predictions around using all sorts of different scenarios. So um, it's a bit difficult to make a kind of statement about whether they're predicting it right and how accurate it's likely to be. They're saying it will be around 9.35 by 2020, um, but that's definitely not going to be 60% of median income in London. And of course, one of the major flaws with this rate is that it doesn't have A a London waiting, um, so it can't take into account the extremely expensive living costs here, which the real living wage does do. So, uh, yeah, we don't know what it's going to look like in 2020, and actually, that's causing huge problems uh, for commercial businesses, for our care sector, all across the board. So, this isn't only an issue for campaigners who've been fighting for the real living wage, it's also really, really problematic for employers who just don't know what the future looks like on, on their wage bill.
2: There have been quite a lot of businesses that have said that this this mandatory living wage uh, is going to cause them a lot of problems, uh, and they're going to find it hard to afford to pay uh, all of their workers uh, this this new national living wage. Um, so, is it is it actually going to be bad for smaller businesses?
1: You know, it's it's really unfortunate because what's happened is the phrase living wage is starting to come associated with this kind of negativity about job losses and struggling businesses. Um, and part of the reason for that is that it's been introduced in, in quite a crude way. So if you think about it Osborne announced this in July uh, and it's coming it's just come in in April that's a really short time frame for businesses trying to pay their people so much more uh, especially a if they're small and they've got really tight margins so you know your kind of corner shop that is just about surviving rents are going up etc etc it's also massively problematic for our very big retailers and hospitality businesses that have um, tens of thousands of staff who were affected by this. Um- Now, having said that, that doesn't mean we shouldn't be pushing for a living wage, a real living wage, but um, commercial reality does need to factor in. If we want to introduce higher wages and we want to do so responsibly and in the best interest of staff, so they're not losing things like paid breaks, so people aren't losing jobs and hours, then it needs to be done um, carefully and slowly. Um, That's part of the reason why we here at the Living Wage Foundation promote a voluntary rate. So we encourage and agitate for businesses to pay it but we also sometimes work with them for quite a long period of time a year to two years behind the scenes helping them get it in place so that it doesn't detrimentally affect their workforce and it works for everyone in the end overall and that is a totally different approach to what Osborne has done.
2: And what sort of methods are you using at the Living Wage Foundation to help these businesses use the Living Wage for all of their staff?
1: To help them pay the real living wage?
2: Yeah, the the, the proper uh, living wage.
1: So, we we use a number of methods and tactics and we work with partner organisations as well as a really effective way of encouraging them. Now, partly they, uh, for the last, say, couple of years, have simply been coming to us because the brand is so strong, they want to be associated with it. You know, it fits for the big ones with their CSR image. And it's um, a way for them to communicate to consumers and customers that they do the right thing on pay. So we know, for example, that 70% of consumers would rather shop in favor of a living wage accredited retailer. That kind of thing brings them towards us. Um, we also work with partner organizations like Share Action, uh, an NGO that does really interesting work targeting the big shareholders of these companies. And they help the shareholders to understand the business benefits of paying the living wage. So we talk about the proven uh, research which shows, for example, lower absenteeism if you pay living wage, um, lower turnover, so that means you're not having such high costs on recruiting new staff and training them, higher productivity, lower customer complaints, all sorts of things. These are now proven from being the real living wage and being accredited. And of course, any savvy business wants those things. So there's a lot of reasons why they come towards us. Some are kind of fluffy CR reasons but some are cold, hard business benefits
2: too. That's really interesting that you say that. I, I sort of uh, obviously knew about the benefits of the living wage for, for staff and workers, but I hadn't thought about the benefits for business doing it. Um, do, do customers have empathy then for, for companies that do that uh, and provide their staff with proper pay?
1: Yeah, Definitely. And I think it's it's for a number of reasons. Firstly, you know, we're all in this society together. We're all uh, seeing food bank queues if we're not in them. We know that there is a growing problem with inequality in this country. And we want to see that solved because we instinctively understand it doesn't benefit any of us, no matter where we are in that chain. Um, it's also uh, when I've spoken with our accredited retailers, they they tell a story of, their customers saying, well, look, if you've got that symbol up on your wall, which says you're a living wage employer, it means I know that you're doing the right thing by your people. And if you're doing the right thing by them, you're probably doing the right thing by me too. You're you're not going to be ripping me off. You know, you're not going to be kind of selling me a bad car or whatever it is. So it's just a marker of respect for human beings. And it's sort of a a way of showing you are a decent employer and you're going to do decent uh, trade.
2: So it's like a sort of Badge of trust or, or ethical behaviour. Exactly, exactly. So there's obviously plus points for business to supply the voluntary living wage, um, but the the Office of Budget Responsibility has said that this this national living wage that the government's pushing uh, may cause mm. businesses to cut up to sixty thousand jobs uh, as they're going to struggle to pay people. Yeah. Um, do you think that's a possibility. Do you think this is actually going to cause job losses because of the way that Osborne is is forcing this through?
1: No, I mean, well, let's first of all the the first part of that. When the national minimum wage was introduced, there were all sorts of dire predictions of job losses, and that simply isn't what came to pass. In fact, um, average weekly earnings rose, and they just didn't see that impact on the job market. We don't know exactly what's going to happen with the national living wage coming in, but um, we at the foundation are not concerned that that's going to impact our work because we are a separate scheme, we are voluntary and actually we're the positive story in response to that which is about raising wages responsibly and protecting the workforce uh, in doing so in line with companies' timeframes and financial years and all of that sort of boring stuff but which actually means the workforce benefits in the end. So if anything,
2: Osborne kind of making this this national living wage mandatory, uh, it's probably pushing more companies towards the Living Wage Foundation to find out how to do it properly uh, and, and so that, that their companies survive uh, as well as giving their staff uh, a proper salary.
1: Exactly. And we have had many come towards us as a result of... Osborne's announcement because they're saying, look, we're going to have to look at our wage bill anyway. We don't know how we're going to do it, but if we're going to have to put it up, we may as well go the whole hog, do the proper living wage and get the brand benefits of being associated with you as well. So it's actually uh, what started off as a slightly terrifying day in July has actually turned into quite a positive story for us.
2: We'll get back to Emily in just a minute,
1: but first...
2: You know what it's like, right? You're just about to leave work to go on a much needed holiday, but you suddenly realise there's work that you were meant to do, so what the hell, you reveal plans to sell off a highly profitable public service and then leave the office and piss off to Lanzarote for Easter, hoping it'll just deal with itself while you're soaking up some lovely vitamin D. We've all been there, right? No, not Lanzarote, though I hear it is very nice at this time of year. It turns out the government is selling off the land registry, something that they announced on 5pm on the day just before the Easter holidays. No one is surprised that they're selling off yet another public service, I mean George Osborne is now the biggest seller of the UK's public services since Thatcher. It's almost as though he got a copy of that Japanese lifestyle book about removing anything in your life that doesn't spark joy and then remembered that the only thing that really makes him smile is making the public bloody miserable. The big problem with selling the land registry is that it controls all property transactions in England and Wales. Last year, it made a surplus of 36.6 million pounds and paid the government more than 100 million pounds in shares of that. So if that ends up in private hands, well, it'll mean a long-term loss for the public coffers yet again. And also, it pushes the infrastructure bill that little bit further towards changing trespassing laws so loads of blowing massive shale gas pipes can be built under private land without asking anyone. And that's what we all want, right? Every time we step into the garden we get the unnerving feeling that we're just a few feet above the evil levels from Super Mario. The infrastructure bill has been passed through two readings at parliament with very little noise about it, which is odd considering how loud it'll be when it's used to let people frack right in your backyard. Which. Sounds a lot ruder than I mean it to. Though, if it happens, you'd probably prefer to witness a couple getting it on on your patio than someone bypassing all your rhododendrons to drill massive holes into the ground, fire chemicals down them, and then taking up all the ancient fossilized gas from the rock fishes. The bill is meant to... It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up.
0: You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax...
2: speed up planning permissions, but it's gonna do this by removing all decisions to sell or develop publicly owned land from the public sector. So the idea would be that private companies could sell public land to do with it what they want, even if that means destroying it for fracking and the like. David Cameron said a while back that the only reason people are against fracking is because they don't know enough about it, and hey, if we don't know enough or have fully conclusive evidence that fracking won't cause earthquakes, pollute water, cause health problems through pollution or disturb ancient dinosaur sorcerer ghosts, then it's just silly to be cautious, isn't it? I mean, Chill guys, chill. Of course all the Queen's properties are exempt from the infrastructure bill, as is anything owned by the British aristocracy who own about a third of Britain's land. And of course they need that land in order to prance around in tweed and shoot things that aren't capable of starting an online petition. So this means the other two-thirds of Britain's land will be used for things like the HS2 detour so it only ruins your houses and not any wealthy estates, or nuclear power plants so your kids can gain web feet and two heads instead. Though to be fair, most of the royal family and aristocracy have those attributes anyway from all the inbreeding. So all very worrying stuff and even more worrying is that the public consultation on selling the land registry ended quite some time ago. There is however a 38 Degrees petition against selling it off that's getting a lot of signatures uh, if you search for land registry on u.38degrees.org.uk and you can check out the consultation document on gov.uk and write to your MP about your objections to it. I'll see if I can get an expert on the infrastructure bill for a future episode too. Failing that, try marrying a royal family member or an aristocrat. Or maybe we should all club together to put adverts in loot saying that the House of Commons is for sale to any nuclear power plant developers as it's toxic enough already, and then we can see how they like it. So there are critics of the living wage, um, and one in particular was an economist called Stephen Wright from Birkbeck Uni, uh, who I read that he said that the... He didn't think the single living wage would actually help to tackle poverty because it's not going to help with uh, bigger problems of tax credit cuts and rising living costs. And actually what there needs to be is several different living wages for different households, uh, which I can imagine would be incredibly difficult to implement um, as an actual policy. Um, So will the living wage help to tackle poverty? Is that something that it will do?
1: So I think something really important to uh, be open and honest about is that poverty is a big and complex problem and an hourly rate is only addressing one part of it. And we're very clear about that. You know, there's, many other things that interplay with that, obviously all the the costs around it, but also um, things like 0 hours contracts and that kind of thing, and, and we only address one part of it. Now, what he's saying relates to the government's national living wage, and in some ways he's right, because as I said earlier, that living wage is not a living wage, it's not calculated according to the cost of living, so you, rightly so, it's not factoring in things like um, tax credit cuts, things like rents going up uh, in contrast a real living wage does because that is the absolute core of its calculation so we would say actually what's needed is the real living wage uh the idea of fragmenting the living wage across lots of different household types is just um like lovely idea but it would never happen in practice um yeah the the actual uh, calculation we use um, does take into account lots of different household types and it weights them and out from that comes our rate. So it's not kind of completely disregarded, but the idea of saying to businesses that work in multiple places um, and with all sorts of people in their business who have all sorts of different household setups, and I mean, of course, you can also imagine the endless categorizing of these household types because, you know, it could be anything. You've got parents and one child, single parent, three children, it goes on and on, you know, and it just it just wouldn't work. You have to feel sorry for the person at payroll trying to do that.
2: Yeah, that would be horrible levels of admin work. Um, so the government's national living wage it's not going to apply to people under 25 years old. Um, Right. Why do you think they've done that, considering that youth unemployment is so high and such a problem at the moment?
1: Well, I think that's probably precisely the reason why they did that, because if youth unemployment is high, make youth labour cheap, and people will be more likely to hire them. So... Um, we suspect that's why they've done it but it is actually really problematic Uh, the real living wage is 18 and up and that's because you know It's news to the cabinet, but not everyone who's under 25 has financial support from their family. Many of them have um, their own responsibilities and dependents, and obviously they're doing the exact same job at 24 the day before their birthday as they are the day after their birthday at 25. And it's really important to be aware of the context as well, that actually for um, people under 30, uh, wages since uh, through the downturn have actually fallen by about 13%, whereas for those in their 50s, they've fallen by about 5%. So wow. they were already, exactly, yes, they were already in a bad situation and now they're going to be pay- being paid more poorly than people doing the exact same work and it may bump up youth employment, but then, of course, we may end up with another situation, which has happened in the Netherlands where they have a youth rate. I think it's at 23, not 25, and they have you know their big supermarket it's their big companies purposefully hiring young people. But of course, that means other people are being left out because they're that much older. So it's a bit of a dodgy practice, and it's certainly not one trade unions tend to like either.
2: So I'm almost sorry to have to ask this, um, but a couple of the Brexit-supporting MPs, particularly John Whittingdale and Chris Grayling, um, they say that a living wage uh, will attract more EU migrants. Uh, Now, I should say that I think this sounds like absolute nonsense also i've never understood that kind of uh idea of making the whole country unattractive for even the people living here just so, <laughs> so it'll stop other people coming here which seems uh completely bonkers um but is this an issue do you think a, a, a mm-hmm. proper living wage will attract more eu migrants and is that a problem uh, and to be fair i think you've already sort of answered this with that brilliant mm, that you you just made <laughs>
1: Well, I mean, the the EU debate is finding anything it can to turn into a political football at the moment. So part of me sort of thinks why even engage with them on this one. But I think that um, firstly, let's remember, we're not um, the only country in the EU with a strong minimum wage. um, And um, the living wage is a new minimum wage. Let's be really clear about that. It's the law. Um, We've had some companies saying, we're really proud to be a national living wage employer. Well, you're saying you're proud not to break the law. It's not really much of a CSR statement. But um, there's not, you know, we, we aren't some kind of beacon of much better wages than anywhere else in the EU. Um, secondly, you know, rather than worrying and fear-mongering about influxes of um, labour and and what that will do to kind of a low-wage labour market, we should be thinking about strengthening the low wage labor market through unionization um, so that they can start fighting for better conditions and rights. I think that's kind of the counterpart to this. When you have people that are in low-wage employment who are scared of influx of migrant workers and who are buying into this narrative, that's because there's no one saying, or they're not saying it strongly enough, it's okay because together we can do collective bargaining, you know, we're going to fight for our rights and we're going to protect our jobs. And that's because we have had a real hollowing out of our unions in this country, and there are ones turning that around, um, like the Independent Workers of Great Britain, the United Voices of the World, who are starting to really organise... Um, specifically in those kind of harder to reach segments of the economy, but let's give them a positive alternative so they don't need to turn to this really negative, fearmongering narrative that people at the top want to sell to them in order to get their vote in a certain way in the referendum. Uh,
2: and as you were just saying there, that, that, that uh, you know, with the hollowing out of unions, I mean, do you think mm-hmm. that with with the trade union bill coming through as well? Um, that we seem to be under a government at the moment that are really uh, adamant about kind of getting rid of workers rights or or lessening them do you think that's the case
1: i think we have to acknowledge that we are operating under a government that um doesn't naturally favor a strong worker organization and um that you know has a has a sort of wish to strengthen the hand of the employer rather than to create a kind of even playing field and dialogue between the two sets of stakeholders and that's really quite scary for a lot of people and We don't want a society, and the economy is within society, we don't want a society that is built on people being afraid and insecure and a kind of dog-eat-dog mentality. It doesn't have to be that way. And I think we should be doing everything we can to strengthen the people that are keeping this country running by being its workforce.
2: Now, as you've said, uh, the government's national living wage isn't actually... Uh, a national living wage, unlike the Living Wage Foundation's uh, voluntary one. Um, So what should we call the government's one then, Uh, Mm. if if it's just a minimum wage? uh, Is there another name that we should refer to it as rather than national living wage? (laughs)
1: Um, So I think we should simply refer to it as what it is, which is a higher minimum wage for people aged 25 and over. That's what it is. So we already have... Different tiers of minimum wage. So, if you're 18 um, to 21, you're earning less than someone aged over 21. So, we've already got pay bands in our minimum wage, and they've just put in another one, uh, and it's for people aged 25 and up. That's all this is. It's a higher minimum wage for people over a certain age, and. you know, if you don't pay it, you're breaking the law. It's that simple. So it's the baseline. It's the absolute wage floor. And it's much like any law, you know, you you don't kill people is the law, but you actually trying to be a good person and a good citizen is the aspiration. And that's where the voluntary living wage comes in. It's for those employers who want to do the right thing, not just the bare minimum.
2: Yeah, I think calling it the minimum wage is probably better than my ideas of just calling it the undead wage or the barely living wage instead <laughs> so um if we've got any listeners out there that are working for a company that they think should provide voluntary living wage or perhaps their customers of somewhere that they would like to provide a a voluntary living wage to uh their staff um what what can they do what sort of uh, advice can you give them uh to help them change things and perhaps persuade those companies to to implement that
1: Well, there's all sorts they can do. Um, They can start by going to a website which is www.livingwagemovement.org. That's the place to go if you want to take action on the living wage rather than if you're an employer and want to read the kind of dry criteria to become a living wage employer. And you can sign up at that movement website and find out how to take action. There's downloadable materials, action guides, and you can see where our campaign groups are around the country. they go out and about doing great work talking to the businesses in their local community saying look I'd love you to pay this because uh, you know your workers are in the community it's part of our economy it supports us if they can spend more and it's really a really powerful way of making change happen on your doorstep by being the person who shops somewhere and is asking them to do something really important.
2: Great, that is absolutely fantastic advice. Um, And as a self-employed comedian, I'm going to insist that my boss implement the voluntary living wage as soon (laughs) as possible. So it seems the government are calling this a living wage, much in the same way that you have affordable housing or compassionate conservatism. Thanks very much to Emily for speaking to me. Um, You can find the Living Wage Foundation at livingwage.org.uk and they have a very informative and very easy to use website. Uh, they're also on Twitter at Living wage UK and on Facebook too. Or if you'd like the place where you work to employ the voluntary living wage or perhaps the place where you shop to employ it, then as Emily said, do check out livingwagemovement.org. Emily is sadly leaving the Living Wage Foundation at the end of this week to work on other very exciting projects. So you can follow her on Twitter at Emily Kenway, that's E-M-I-L-Y-K-E-N-W-A-Y to find out all about those. I've got some uh, really interesting interviews lined up for the next few weeks, but please do keep sending through any suggestions for anyone that you'd like me to speak to or any subjects in particular that you'd like me to talk to someone about. Uh, And send all those through to all the usual email and Twitter addresses. With the Prime Minister wearing headphones in Lanzarote and Jeremy Corbyn eating cake in Devon, I asked all our followers on Twitter and Facebook where they'd suggest that certain MPs should go on holiday. And again, there has been some very, very lovely replies from you all. Thank you very much. Uh, Jamie Newton at JTAN on Twitter said that Ed Balls could go to the place where Pokemon come from because they also like saying their own name. Uh, which I I don't know where Pokemon come from. Is that just Japan, is it? I don't know. Uh, It's a lovely idea. I do think Ed Balls would make a terrible Pokemon. Uh, I guess he'd be a Pokemon Red. Would that be right? And his powers would probably just be leaving a note for his enemies saying, sorry, there's no Pokeballs left, which they'd completely misinterpret. Uh, Lee, who is at Budgie on Twitter, he suggested uh, Boris Johnson Mount Athos Monastery. I think he means Athos or Athos, unless, I mean, unless that's a monastery where they tell everyone that they're fit for work regardless, um, and I guess he means Mount Athos because it's incredibly far away uh, from civilization. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn uh, should go to Tel Aviv, Dan Jarvis, the NEC, and Jacob Rees-Mogg, the 1890s, which I'm pretty sure he's already there the rest of the year anyway. Uh, Dave, who is Unreal unrealmckay on Twitter, says that he's not sure where he'd send Christopher Chope, but can it be a one-way ticket? I'm sure it can, Dave. Simon Spooner, lovely bit of uh, wordplay yet yeah, again this week. Alex Salmond always fails when he tries to fly on holiday. Disneyland, lovely work. Louis D. Strong's gone for a little bit of rhyming. Uh, he'd like to send Gove to Hove, Ben to a Glen, Grayling should go sailing and Peter Bone should stay at home. And lastly, James McKellen on Facebook says that he'd like to suggest that George Osborne should visit the Mariana Trench, the very, very bottom of it. Well, I suppose it would be a holiday for George Osborne if he didn't have to dig his own hole for once. I'm going to keep posting weekly questions on Twitter and Facebook, so keep your eyes peeled and do send your entries in. At some point, I may even do prizes. Though, let's be honest, if you're spending as much time wishing politicians were sent to some sort of horrific destination as I do, then really, we're all losers. It's the Partly Big Society. Before I do this week's Partly Big Society, here is a quick update on our first one from a few weeks ago. Uh, Daniel Barrett received a letter back from Councillor Roy Perry after he sent the Hampshire Council some candles for the Queen's Street Party and a rather lovely letter explaining why they need to keep the Sure Star centres. Uh, Daniel sent me a pic of this letter, so I thought I would read it out on the podcast. It says, Dear Mr Barrett, thank you for your letter with the small gift enclosed. I will ensure that it is donated to charity. I'm afraid I've never heard of Tin and Do Jeb. Again, ah." Uh, every time, Do Jeb, it's an eye. it's not that hard, uh, and appear to have, and re- no wonder you've not heard of Tien and Do Jeb. he doesn't exist. I'm afraid I've never heard of Tian and Do Jeb and appear to have received no balloons. And that's quite sad to me, it means that my package is probably lost somewhere in the postal system. He goes on to say, there is a consultation currently taking place about how we organise our help for young families and Sure Start and no decision has yet been taken. Any support we have offered on behalf of the people of Hampshire to mark Her Majesty's 90th birthday will have absolutely no impact on any decision about how best to help young families and how to constitute the Children's Centre service to ensure it's most effectively targeted at those in real need. There's a lovely bit of copy and pasting from you there, Roy. Clearly just lifted from somewhere. And he finishes by saying, I was very sorry to receive just one letter, but a particularly unpleasant one describing Her Majesty as the country's biggest benefit, scrounger. I don't find those views widely shared in Hampshire and they give no help to any campaign to support the current configuration of children's centres. Yours sincerely, Councillor Roy Perry. Um, That letter, I believe, was sent by Jane Mortimer. Well done, Jane. Very good. Uh, Apparently particularly unpleasant. Um, So... uh, great that Daniel received a letter great that it's obviously made some impact uh sad to hear that he's only received one other if you do still want to take uh if you do still want to take part in that then please do uh, carry on sending Hampshire council some rubbish gifts uh, all the details for that are on the podcast and on our Facebook page I'm really really hoping my package hasn't got lost in the post those were some really really good princess balloons right so for this week's partly big society we head to the London borough of Barnet whose Tory-led council signed two big contracts last year with private outsourcing company Capita PLC. What? Conservatives shirking responsibility from themselves via neoliberal privatisation once again? Shocking, huh? The two contracts mean that all the council's back office services, such as customer service and HR, among others, are all outsourced to save costs. And also that Capita are now in a partnership with Barnet Council on all development and regulatory services in the borough. The excellent Mrs Angry, or at Broken Barnet on Twitter, has been highlighting why neither of these contractor alliances are saving money or time or, well, Barnet at all. Uh, And her blog is at www.brokenbarnet.blogspot.co.uk. Do check that out. And there is no dot between the WWW and the Broken Barnet, which is very confusing. Anyway, this week in particular, local Barnet residents are protesting against the council's current plans to destroy all the local libraries. Well, sort of destroy, but more, like the Borg in Star Trek, kind of assimilate all the libraries so they all become technology-enabled libraries. These buildings require a PIN code to enter, have absolutely no staff and no facilities like toilets or otherwise, so if you don't have the PIN, you can't get in, which is a lovely rhyme that I hope they don't use. If you need assistance to use the services, you won't be able to get in, and if you're a child under 15, you have to be with an adult who has a pin. So essentially, they're transforming libraries from useful public buildings where anyone can study and read into, well, a lonely room with a few books in it that require Mission Impossible-like abilities to get into, and once you're finally there, you'd probably feel more welcome in a prison. This system has been tried in Peterborough and hasn't worked very well, surprise! And it's going to cost Barnet Council about £1.4 million to install, which is money that could be spent better improving the current libraries with more things like, you know, books. Again, Mrs Angry has written some excellent blogs highlighting all the problems and some of the council's uncaring responses to people's queries about it at local meetings. So I thought for this week's Partly Big Society we could just do a really simple protest to help the people of Barnet. Dan Thomas is the deputy leader of Barnet Council and he's also currently running for the London Assembly, supporting bizarro Schofield Zach Goldsmith in his mayoral campaign. Dan uses Twitter quite a lot and his username is at Barnet and Camden, all one word. And I thought it might be fun if every time Dan tweets, we all reply with a shh and then hashtag BooksNotRobotsForBarnet. Again, please don't be rude, and while chances are he may just block or mute everyone that does it, if he gets enough responses that just say, shh, you choose how many H's, and the hashtag, books not robots for Barnet, then hopefully it'll rattle his cage just a little bit. I mean, the idea that someone like that is trying to have a say in all of London's services is terrifying. I mean, what next? Wedding registries run by Skynet, ED209 on parking, pay your fine, you have 20 seconds to comply. Actually, I hope Dan Thomas doesn't listen to this. I feel I'm probably giving him some ideas. Stick a full stop before uh, the at Barnet and Camden in your reply, so hopefully it'll encourage other people who follow you to do the same and annoy him in the same way. And if Dan Thomas does reply to you, please do point out exactly why you're telling him to shh. If you live in Barnet, do write to your other counsellors as well, and all details are, again, on Mrs Angry's blogs. Also, if you have a local issue that you'd like me to mention on Partly Big Society, please get in touch. And I'll see you on Twitter for some Dan Thomas... shh, A-S-A-P. And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast. Again, if you enjoy the show, please, please spread the word like it's some damn tasty marmalade. The more people that listen, the more chance we have that we can annoy people like Councillor Dan Thomas. If you are interested in helping with this show, maybe making me some better jingles, or if there's someone you'd like me to interview, then do get in touch via partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at Parpol bro and on Facebook at Parpol bro as well. If you listen via iTunes, please do give us a nice review, as it really does help iTunes to promote it more. Or at least give us a star rating, which is even quicker to do. We'll be back next week, so as they say in the steel industry, ta-ta for now. Well, hopefully, for even longer than now.